Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dr. Mariana Amatulo, Brian Boyer, and Andrew Shea. They are three of the editors of the recently released book, Design for Social Innovation, Case Studies from Around the World. Dr. Amatulo is an Associate Professor of Strategic Design and Management at Parsons School of Design in New York. Her teaching and scholarship are focused at the intersection of the design and management fields with an emphasis on the role of design as a cognitive capability for innovation and in organizations. In addition to her role at Parsons, Dr. Amatulo serves as the Vice Provost overseeing the executive education and academic online strategy in the continuing and professional division of the New School. Prior to joining the New School, she co-founded and led the award-winning social innovation department Design Matters at Art Center College of Design in Pasadena, California. Brian is co-founder of the architecture studio Dash Marshall, where he runs the studio strategic design practice. In addition to that, Brian is founding director of the Urban Technology Program at University of Michigan's Tubman College of Architecture and Urban Planning and an assistant professor of practice in architecture. Previously, Boyer was co-founder of Helsinki Design Lab at the Finnish Innovation Fund, one of the first design teams working at a national level inside government. His recent editorial projects include Design for Social Innovation Case Studies from Around the World and Leap Dialogues, Career Pathways in Design for Social Innovation. Brian serves on the board of directors for a public policy lab in New York City and lives in Detroit, Michigan. Andrew founded and is the creative director of Many Design, a studio that designs strategies and artifacts that support progressive social agendas, sustainable economic endeavors, and the environment. He is also an assistant professor of integrated design at Parsons School of Design, the new school. Andrew was an editor of Design for Social Innovation, Case Studies from Around the World, and Leap Dialogues, Career Pathways in Design for Social Innovation, and he wrote Designing for Social Change, Strategies for Community-Based Graphic Design. So again, I want to welcome all of you to the deep dive. This is a, a really exciting opportunity for me. Whenever I could have a show where I have more than one guest, it's an opportunity to really expand the conversation. It keeps my eyes moving from place to place. This is a very exciting moment. So Mariana, I'm going to start with you for the very first question. And, you know, the book Design for Social Innovation is, is really an impressive collection of case studies and intellectual thought. And a lot of work went into that. You know, we have two out of the four of you here, three out of the four of you here to kind of talk about the book. But I want to give you an opportunity to weigh in on really what was the genesis and the thought process behind taking on a project of this scope, size, and magnitude. Thank you. And um, your question is a great way for me to introduce the fourth co-editor who's not with us today, and that is Jennifer May, the Executive Director of Design Matters. Because really, we got the idea for this book as we worked together, um, Andrew, Brian, Jennifer, and I, in a prior project uh, years ago when we were looking at this field and really focusing on career pathways and taking a look at the US after a symposium that um, I, I convened when I was at Art Center College of Design. So there are several years behind thinking about this book, I would say for us, but it was clear to us that after that, that first book, which was a very different book, there was a promise and an opportunity to take a more expansive, research-driven approach to the field and invite other colleagues. And this book, as you know, has a very privileged roster of international colleagues that were editorial advisors. And we, we really felt the need that it was an important moment to 
take the temperature, so to speak, and understand how the field was evolving in different ways and in similar ways in different parts of the world. So there was a lot of uh, thinking behind, you know, the idea of this book before any of us, I think, um, you know, started started the process of putting a book proposal together. And, and then even that book proposal together, and I'll invite Andrew and Brian to say more, was also a process of maturation that was, you know, both bottom up and from the ground up as, as this book evolved. And, and Brian, I'll let you jump in there with your thoughts. Um, because I think when, when listeners get an opportunity, you know, hopefully to hold the work in their hand and, and go through the book, they'll really get a sense for not just physical heft of it, but the intellectual heft of it. So I, I, I really want to emphasize how meaningful this, this process had to have been to have ended in the, in the place that it ended. So Brian, I'll let you jump in there. I mean, the first answer that came to mind when you asked the question is that a bit of foolishness was probably also part of the starting point for this project, because I think if any of us had known how much effort it was going to take to pull together all of the cases and, and how long it would take, we might have thought differently about starting the project. But, you know, we we kind of recognize that the field of design for social innovation is one where, as we found when we were doing the research, most people come to it from other fields or other disciplines. And so that means that they don't necessarily have a common language. And that means that it makes it harder for them to see who their peers are or who else is doing similar work, who else they could learn from, and even who else they could be competing against or, you know, trying to do better than in a collegiate way. And so part of taking this bottom-up approach that Mariana described, you know, we basically sent out an open call and said, we're welcoming any kind of project. You use whatever definition is meaningful to you for design for social innovation or, or even those words as individual terms. And so then when we got everything back, you know, there was quite a range, like somebody submitted a project that sent a hot dog into space as one of the proposals. And, and through kind of talking about it, we decided that maybe that's not uh, the the most representative version of design for social innovation. So that one, you know, fell by the wayside. But um, kind of going through those discussions, it, it's obviously something that you, there's not really a, a kind of baseline objectivity, right? It's it's a conversation. It's a process of kind of refining and, and developing a perspective on the 200 or so projects that were on the table. How do we pull out of that a set that's representative of the geography of practices that we're seeing, types of practices that we're seeing, scale, you know, from just a few dollars to millions of dollars, just a few people to lots of people. You're trying to like find a way to, uh, I guess, catalog or understand the texture of design for social innovation work in a way that is a little bit more detailed than often what happens in the quote unquote case studies that get shared. Uh, where, you know, frankly, a, a lot of them are more promotional in nature or the ones that really do go into perhaps some of the the blow-by-blow analysis or the pros and cons of the work that was done, they might not share the details of, for instance, how is that work set up? Uh, who funded it? Where did that funding come from? What scale was it at? These kinds of details. And yet, from a practitioner perspective, those things really are definitive or even make or break. And so we wanted to be able to highlight the diversity of those characteristics of the projects as well. And Andrew, I'll, I'll let you jump in there. And I have like a bunch more to go into as it pertains to really design for social innovation, but I'm going to put a pin in it for a second and, and let you jump in. I, I think it's important for everybody to hear all three voices before we really go further. <laughs> Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, um, it's we, we all know people who do this kind of work, and I think uh, relying on that alone was was not enough for us. When you look outside of the, the lenses and the windows that we're used to looking into, the resources and the individuals and the companies that do this kind of work, and, and that, I think, became a real point of inspiration for me, is to see that range, to see those different voices emerging. And, you know, we, we talk about geography a lot with this book, but the, the whole range of um, backgrounds that, that lend into that, that we can sort of draw from and understand the diversity of the work, I think is what was maybe most exciting to us in the conversations we were having early on. What can we learn about the, about the traces of design for social innovation? 
as they're occurring around the world. So that was a big part of it. I think just discovering who these voices are. You know, Brian pointed out all those all those distinctions between the projects and um, and, and some of the factors that we were uh, really excited to learn about. And I think those were um, certainly part of that as well. So you know, the word discovery in your answer came up quite a bit, and. I think one of the prevailing thoughts I had as I went through the book and looked at some of the case studies is that you are discovering not just practitioners, but you're discovering process, you're discovering methodologies, you're discovering challenges. You know, there's many case studies that are dealing with issues that for a guy sitting in Brooklyn in New York, they're not my issues, right? In a in a broadest sense of I'm not thinking about them on a daily basis. So there's a lot of inherent discovery, I think, cooked into the book. Kind of taking that as a, a place setter, when you're talking about designing for social innovation, just the the collection of, of the way those words are put together invites an entire way of thinking about this field. You know, so I'm going to start with you, Brian. Like, how did you guys really put some wrap your arms around a field that is both old in the sense that people are thinking about challenges, but also new in the way we are thinking about design as a tool to solve these problems. I mean, one of the ways I think about social innovation is it's about doing old things in new ways, just very simply. And design is a very important part of doing anything new, right? That's what the design process is about, is is creating new stuff that feels still somehow within our reach or within our grasp. And so when we were talking about it, the various projects and, you know, how to make sense of them and and really how to start to curate the, the list that's in the book, one of the starting points is that they had to be real projects. Now, what does real project mean? It cannot be a proposal. It cannot be a hypothetical. Um, so there are projects in the book, for instance, like with the Red Cross Red Crescent Society that involved scenarios about the future, but those scenarios were uh, material that was engaged with by decision makers at that organization and with the intent of helping expand their mindset about, well, about the decisions that they're making, right? And so, you know, that's an example where it's hard to quantify per se the outcomes or the impact. It, it doesn't fit neatly into a spreadsheet in terms of dollar value or carbon footprint that's been reduced or something like that. But the way that they started to index the the reality or the realness of that project is through seeing then uh, futures-oriented methods be integrated into the, the ongoing uh, work of the organization. And so there's some, you know, qualitative change, let's say, in in the nature of how that organization works. And I I think that's a a useful example for us of what it means to do something that's real. And the scale across the board here, or like the level uh, 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 at which these projects get executed is quite varied. and, And that's intentional as well. So if I think about something like Acciones de Paz, which is a, a project about creating a public space initiative, um, it, it's furniture. And if anybody from the project is listening, I hope this isn't insulting to say, but the furniture itself is not the great innovation. It was more about how you bring a set of stakeholders that don't really trust each other together in a space that's symbolically meaningful to, to do something and process some of the traumas of the past. In that particular uh, case, it's it's about a, a war. And so, you know, I think that's an example at a very small scale. And then there are projects, I don't know, to pick one at random, like Solo Kotakita, which is a kind of way of, or a, an organization that does a kind of public education and uh, essentially data sharing as part of a, a decision-making process. And, you know, that is something that's been repeated across Indonesia multiple times with lots and lots of people and and folks are involved in all sorts of different ways, right? And so, you know, from the smallest up to something that's almost at a national scale, we wanted to see that kind of breadth. But that ultimate test of like, have you actually done something? And have you reflected then on whether it had impact or not? That was the basic starting point. And Andrew, I'll let you jump in there as well. You know, this, this kind of pulling something old and something new as an inherent thought process. 
Like how, how did that hit you as you were kind of thinking about this? Um, you know, I think it, so many good projects that Brian just mentioned. Um, the, in the very beginning, I think we were trying to figure out how to, how to bring more transparency to the projects that we're uh, featuring and the, the process of figuring out from that large number that we initially received to some degree was reliant on whether or not people were willing to share some of those details. And as someone who's worked on these kinds of projects before, I know that it's a, it's a challenge for people to open up so much because oftentimes they don't record the kind in the process while they're working on a project. And so, the, you know, the, it's, it's a challenge because you're trying to find the right fit of, of projects that there, where there is that kind of information and the right kind of mindsets that are um, willing to um, uh, describe those in details. And I, I have to say, I feel, I feel very proud of the ones that we uh, came up with or that we uh, landed on at the end because I did find that, um, you know, there is a sense of impact at various scale. There, we weren't necessarily looking for a pro of all products that have uh, regional impact or, or, or national impact or in a specific way. We were looking for projects where local audiences or audiences of different sizes um, were actually able to have a sense of the, of the impact of that design or of the collaboration that brought that social and I'm gonna I'm gonna switch gears a little bit, Mariana, because I want to get you in here on a, on a different question, but somewhat connected to you know this idea of how when you're dealing with something this big, you're really dealing with a lot of you know values, ideas, some very human things, you know, beyond the methodology. And I I want to think about or ask you about so much of when we're talking about design, when it's used in social spaces, let's use that as a shorthand, it feels like these, like they exist on a fringe, right? There's sort mm -hmm. of this marginal way in which the work is perceived, right? So with that as a base, how do we, or can one move this type of work away from sort of a, a marginal perspective, skipping scale, which comes with its own weight. So I'm kind of giving my own judgment towards scale and maybe landing where things can be more replicable, yes. if, if that makes sense, right? So I'm going to, I know I said a lot, but I want to give you a chance to to go down that road a little bit. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to be um, the designer here and sort of uh, change the brief of the question a little bit to, to continue on the, on the, on this idea of these real projects with, this, you know, more academic definition of design for social innovation, which which has this this uh, sort of image of enhancing society's capacity to act, and the reason I want to bring that up and connect it back to your, to the question you're asking now, Philip, is because connected to values is the connection to action. I believe in design projects that are trying to have a social uh, meaning, a social purpose. And you can't really divorce those those two things completely. And of course, it's important to understand that in this space of design, we are at a moment, critical moment of recognition that we are living, I believe, in, in throughout all our universities uh, around the world. Also owning a very patriarchal, colonial, Western, global North perspective about design. And this plays out in this book um, in uh, important ways, I believe, where you can unpack, I believe, as a reader and as a participant, a lot around this question of, of values. And when you ask about replicability, my, my first answer is we have this uh, linear management, and I, and I have a PhD in management, so I'm part of this group of people, right? We are we have this mental model that if it's good, it can be replicated and it can be scaled. And I think one of the things we learned from some of these projects is that they are valuable because of their uniqueness and, and the way they honor the values and the needs of the communities in which they have been born and developed and, and designed. And I'm thinking particularly in, into a very moving project, uh, the project of the University of Florida with uh, in Universidad de Guadalajara in Mexico, the Huarixca calendar, El Calendario del Mundo Huarixca, 
which is a project that brings this sense of a rural, you know, traditions, oral traditions of farmers and rural in, in, in this community together and, and the concept of time for this community with a concept of Western time and really tries to reconcile these two very different ways of approaching day to day by by honoring very divergent values and doing it with a lot of respect. And, you know, I would argue that that, that project is not necessarily replicable, perhaps the process and, you know, there, there are things we can learn that could be replicable about, you know, uh, similar projects in, in other parts of the world, but they would need to honor very, very different traditions. So I'm pushing back on this question of replicability, knowing very well, though, but if we go back to some of what Brian was talking about earlier around funding and a lot of, around challenges, we know in your point about being out from, you know, going beyond the fringe, that these material resources are, of course, incredibly powerful to see this field continue to grow. But, you know, if you look at the data of, of the collection and you just of these 45 cases, the the message, the the finding is is not that great, right? What we see around uh, funding is that most of these projects are still public and social sector funded. The private sector, where you have scale, right, is not participating at the levels we might need them to participate. Um, so, I would say there's there's work to be done there. And this is this is great because I love when we go off the brief and <laughs> it, it gives us the opportunity to, you know, kind of go down, continue down this road a little bit. And I love that response because it gives us a chance to do two things, right? Which is talk about some of the practicalities that has been raised through your answers, again, around funding and oftentimes when one is thinking about scale and and which is why I want to separate scale from being replicable. I think things can be small and useful and, and scale is often a, a tool of, of capitalism, right? Mm -hmm. That if something can't scale, it's not worth doing, which is why I wanted to move us away from scale. But what I wanted to capture and maybe replicable wasn't the best word is tying in this notion of the lifespan of, of projects with an adaptability and a, a shifting nature of projects. And, and the reason why I really highlighted that in my notes, and I have lots of notes here, is, is because the capitalist project, the colonial project, the, the patriarchal project is just fucking adaptable as hell, right? Like it just finds a way, regardless of the evidence, to ingratiate itself to a new group of believers, you know? And, and we're trapped heavy word, but, you know, trapped by its thinking, right? Um, we're trapped by the marketplace. Everything is discussed in terms of the marketplace for the most part, not everything, but you know what I mean? So what I want to try to get at is how do we create counter narratives that can become as adaptable in a good way <laughs> versus the prevailing notions that are just so gross, <laughs> I'm out of technical terms. So I had to land on gross. So <laughs> Brian, I want you to kind of pick up from there. And then I'm going to go to Andrew. And I know, Marianne, you probably have something to say about that too. So there's going to be a round robin. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot here. I mean, I I think I think I want to answer this question on, you know, some of the maybe meta aspects about the field and about the practice. And then we can talk about an example project as a way of demonstrating a kind of different way of being. So on a meta level, you know, I think one of the things that we were trying to do that gets at this question of will these glimmers of light be available in another year or 10 years, whatever it is, right? Whether it's the same folks doing it or other people doing similar things, whether it's at a larger scale or not, whether we call it recoblo <laughs> I can't even say it. <laughs> it is a uh, tough one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's lots of challenges here in, in terms of terminology and then dealing with the colonizing and, and other aspects. But I think one of the projects for us was also just to get folks in this space more comfortable talking about the uh, context that's important for their work to be able to happen. So where is it 
the work that you have done and where is it the luck of your context, right? Or or you putting like serious effort into seeding the ground so that you can do something. And so for instance, getting people to talk about the scale of the funds that were involved in the project is one way of then, like it's a clumsy measure, but it's a way of understanding like what were the resources behind this? And that then helps you understand whether you think the outcomes were really successful and amazing or kind of successful or, you know, or not. And it's interesting because in the design community, talking about money is a really sensitive topic. If I ask another architect, you know, how much they're charging or even how much they're paying their people or these kinds of basics of, of financial questions, they are likely to be cagey. But if I were a startup person and I asked a colleague about money, they are much more willing to be very open. And I think that part of that speaks to a greater clarity in other disciplines, actually, about where your value contribution is. Not value prop, but like, what is the unique thing that you are doing better than anybody else? And so, you know, as designers start to get more confident about the value that they're bringing to projects like the ones in this book, then I think they should be able to open up about these contextual elements in a way that then makes it easier for all of us as a community of practice to really see how people are making it work and therefore see ways in which we might make it work, either the same, similar, or you know, a, a variation on it. So if I switch gears and think then about examples from the cases that you know, really bring to life an alternative perspective on the economy, that's where I would start. Everyone Every Day is one of my favorite projects along those lines. Um, it's a project in South London organized by a group called Participatory City, and they are really interested in bringing neighbors together to do, again, everyday things, make meals, mend goods, share things, share spaces, celebrate, learn about each other's cultures and backgrounds and, you know, this texture of everyday life, right? But what they have done is really create this zone of exchange that isn't predicated on monetary value. And I think it's a really prescient example of what our neighborhoods could be like, right? There's no reason that Brooklyn uh, can't be the next participatory city project. Uh, and yet it's quite hard to imagine, I think, from the perspective here in the U.S., just because of the, the weight of the capitalist hedge money here is even stronger, I think, than most places. And we got rid of block parties, right? That was a long-standing Brooklyn tradition that has been eliminated by and large. Um, you you lived in the neighborhood for the block party. I could say that as a longtime Brooklyn resident. But um, my nostalgia notwithstanding, Andrew, I want to give you a chance to 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 weigh in there. I was just rereading that project too, and I was thinking how how wonderful it would be to live in a neighborhood where everybody was involved in such a uh, dynamic way. So I, I um, yeah, that's a good example. And I think one one thing that also, I mean, we talked about, I know we're not talking about scale, we talk about ways that people are opening and sharing the work that they're doing. And I go back to this word transparency again, because, you know, I think about that a lot when it comes to the sort of protections we put around our practice or the protections that we, we, we remove from our practice. And that's one of the things that I'm, I try to do in my practice and also try to encourage my students is like, how are you, how are you doing what you're doing? Uh, tell us about it. The scale could be, you know, uh, sort of housed within a sort of, more, as you pointed out, like more of a capitalistic um, way of thinking about it. But the scale could also be, thinking, how do I need to collaborate? Building a bit on the, on, on the thread that Brian was bringing from the, from the, the meta, and your earlier question, Philip, around replicability and going straight into a project, uh, redesigning the U report, I think, is an interesting is an interesting project. Again, this is of course the United Nations global system, but it, it's a project that was fascinating in that it took a very uh, simple technology, SMS, and this idea of two way communication and became quite disruptive in the United Nations system where we are uh, really uh, used to a much more uh, mediated top-down approach from central offices and regional offices and where 
there is not necessarily an opportunity to communicate directly with users in real time. There are all these different filters for protocol reasons, for security reasons, etc. And this is a project that really sort of disrupted that way of working and became incredibly successful being scaled across different country offices in different parts of the world with the same technology, but very different needs in allowing youth to communicate in real time about, you know, whether it's an HIV AIDS sort of need, whether it's a disease outbreak, whether it's a war, etc. So I think in projects like those, we see the power of a much more human-centered, empathic process, right, that design brings uh, to the more technocratic technology constructs that a lot of, uh, of organizations in international development have to follow. We see that disruption, and that becomes replicable in this in this project. And that, I believe, is, it becomes quite exciting in terms of those glimmers of hope where we can see that, you know, this is going to live on and and, 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 and in fact, it has since its um, advent in the late 20, 2018, I believe. Absolutely. You know, continuing down down this thread a little bit, because I think the the book touches on so many different sections. Well, there's several sections to the book, and there's some that really le- leapt out to me that you don't, quote unquote, normally see discussed in the context of design work, much less when you're doing design for social innovation, you know, to use the the big title. And one one part of that is this notion of power. There's an, an entire section of the book called Geographies of Power that I that I kind of gravitated to right away because I think there's such a history or a notion, that's a better word for it. There's a notion that design comes with a certain level of neutrality. And power clearly isn't neutral, right? It, it expresses itself in, in many ways, whether that's political, economic, cultural, so on and so forth. So I want to just broadly discuss how power and the exchange of power in relation to the idea of neutrality was woven through really just, it was talked about expressly in that section but as a reader, it seemed to be woven through so much of the text. So, you know, Brian, why don't we start with you there and kind of go back around? Yeah, I mean, I think this um, kind of lurking issue of power dynamics in design practice, for me, actually, I have perhaps a simplistic approach to it, right? Which is that a lot of the perspectives and even methods that have been adopted in a context of design for social innovation have a starting point or a lineage that connects to product design and product design is, you know, squarely in the world of there's a customer and there's somebody who's providing a product. And so the neutrality, if we can put scare quotes around that in that context is being neutral as between the person who wants to sell the thing and everybody else. And actually it makes perfect sense in that context, right? Like it's great to have that quote unquote neutral person who can advocate for the users. Uh, and and think beyond just the way that the dollars and cents work out in the project. And that's been really transformative in the realm of product design. But I, I think what you're picking up on here is the kind of uneasiness, perhaps, or, or even just direct criticism of kind of the use or the translation of some of those methods and approaches to contexts that are much more complicated, and specifically social contexts, which is the nature of all of the work in this book where that question of neutrality is never possible. The stakes are much more heightened here. And so I think what you are picking up in reading the text of the book is an awareness that this is an emerging issue, first of all, and a kind of attempt to grapple with it. And so the roundtables, including Geographies of Power and a few others, you know, they were an opportunity for us to take stock of emerging issues in the field that we don't have answers to. And in that sense, the book is probably a little bit schizophrenic in terms of it's a set of case studies that are very direct and then a set of more reflective or open conversations where we brought together a group of practitioners for each one. So in this case, for the Geographies of Power panel, we had Fatou Wuri of UNICEF 
We had Ahmed Ansari of NYU, who's been a big proponent of decolonizing design, and Shana Agid of uh, Parsons School of Design, who's a, a colleague of Mariana and Andrew. And then Mariana was moderating that conversation. So I'm actually going to pass it to Mariana now and let her talk a little bit more about it. Yes, well, thank you for that setup. You know, I, I think this is, it, it was very um, humbling to moderate that conversation with these incredible colleagues who are coming from very different parts of the world, from different perspectives, deep theoretical and academic perspectives, social social work perspectives and practice perspectives, and how, you know, when you read that piece, all of that comes together in a manner that is not overly academic, which we also, for us in this book, it was really very important that this book not only be self-referential to those of us in the design community, those of us writing in journals and in papers, but that we would bridge to to colleagues in non-design and, and to practitioners. And I think this piece, I'm very proud of it and how this gets addressed because I think we bring it down to, to the ground. And one of the questions of power that came up in that discussion is also this question of humility and uh, and understanding the limitations of design, understanding the inherent non-neutrality of design. And there is this wonderful anthropologist, Arturo Escobar, whose uh, work has been really celebrated and discovered by the design community, I would say, in the last few years. And Arturo talks about the pluriverse, right? How do you manage to honor difference and recognize that there are many worlds within a world, um, this concept of the plural, that um, designers have not been that great at honoring, even with our co-design and you know participatory processes. So I believe that, again, you know, going back to some of the projects, we see projects where even the research methods of co-designing and participatory design when it comes to power, they are limited. And we, with this uh, round table, I think there, there's a very honest conversation about the dilemmas, the gaps, and that there is a long road to go, you know, to get to a place. Sometimes the best solution for the designer not to intervene at all, right? To be there to learn and to listen. And I have a follow-up, but Andrew, I want you to, to weigh in there on, on the power conversation. Yeah, thank you. I, I was thinking about it in kind of how it showed up in different roundtables as well. I'm thinking about the power that different mediums play in the roundtable, for example, mediums of change that, that Brian was the moderator of and really understanding which mediums might in those cases, what, what are they communicating? How are they being used? And, and is that being used in a way which is sort of honoring, not just honoring those communities, but also um, what kind of power is being created in that process? And I was also thinking about the, the roundtable that I moderated around positioning for growth, where, where members of the roundtable were talking about participation when it comes to different forms of governance. Very clear examples of how power can become used and misused, of course. But there is this question of how much participation should we all be having in government to have power. But you know, I, I think what was so interesting about one of the things I think was so interesting about that roundtable was understanding the places people were coming from and how much time and commitment and energy, honestly, that they might be able to commit to different initiatives to sort of gain power and, and sort of take advantage of opportunities that can um, provide more of that power. So I've said power like 15 times right there. But, you know, it's interesting the way it's showing up in the various threads of the, of the roundtables for sure. And in the artifacts and the sort of experiences that we're seeing in the case studies. And, you know, I, I actually really like how that was woven together because there's an opportunity to bring in, you know, a few of the other roundtables that were already highlighted. So whenever, you know, guests talk to my notes, I'm like, this is great, right? Because I don't have to jot down new stuff. I just got to follow the blueprint, right? And the the mediums of change was one. The positioning for growth was another. And those really dovetail into my follow-up because geographies of power, just having the word geography linked to power. And geography is, is not just the 
land and and the world around us, but it can be the institutions that we live in, both formal and informal, you know, academic institutions, corporate institutions, grant writing institutions, any number of different things. They all really are geographic spaces, even within when we think about maps and, and all that kind of stuff. So what I want to offer is how do we navigate these geographies that already have some established rules without reinforcing those rules when we're looking to change, right? So I see head nodding, but I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to Brian first and then Mariana, you're going to be up. All right. Thank you for saving this easy question. Oh yeah. This is a, once this we is get a, into the conversation. This is a home run, right? So <laughs> perfectly teed up. I mean, so this is something I, I think a lot about currently because I'm in the process of, well, have recently launched and, and continuing to develop a new degree program at the University of Michigan focused on urban technology. But ultimately, the students who graduate, they'll be designers. So they have to navigate this. And you know, the basic question from a curriculum standpoint has been, do we teach them to be designers in the world that we want to inhabit? that doesn't have systemic racism, that doesn't have carbon as an externality that's acceptable, that, you know, go down the line? Uh, or do we teach them to understand the world as it is and to find some source of optimism or something that can carry them to not just accept the status quo, but to want to shift it? And in talking about this, I spoke with Chelsea Malden, who runs Public Policy Lab in New York, which is a, a great organization. And, you know, she described it as we should seek to educate smooth talking radicals. And I really appreciate this perspective because I think at this point, it's 2022, we've seen that, yes, you can advocate and you can stomp your feet and you can march for things and change can happen because of that. But if that were the primary mechanism of change in our society, a lot of things would be different right now, right? Because we've been marching and yelling about things, similar things since the 60s, and yet here we are. So I think to some extent, we have to be respectful of uh, the inertia that is embodied in our institutions. And the reality is it's very hard to create a new institution. So if we do manage to say, great, we don't like this government, we don't like this, you know, whatever it is, this department, let's get rid of it. Well, then you have to build something new from scratch. And that's actually really, really, really hard. So how do we take advantage of the investment that we're already having the, the systems around us and change the parts that need to be changed, but without throwing the entire thing out, right? And so I think that's one of the things that we're seeing in various bits or various examples, I should say, in the book in terms of, you know, projects, again, like the Red Cross, Red Crescent that I used as an example earlier, or the U report that Mariana mentioned, where it's about changing some of the baseline within existing organizations and changing the practices and changing the mindsets. And, you know, I think of this, again, in a kind of simplistic framework, but the stuff that's in the book for a lot of people looks weird right now. And if it doesn't look weird, maybe it looks quirky, you know, like a, a little less strange. It's just kind of quirky. Like, okay, you designers, you go do that stuff over there. But as this type of work becomes more familiar, as making decisions based on quantitative and qualitative input together, right, becomes more common or iteration becomes more common, would, you know, kind of take your pick here. What feels quirky today will become normal and what feels normal will eventually become boring. And I think that's a manner in which you can be subversive and you can work from within institutions in addition to people who are perhaps working from the outside in a much more critical mode. But I personally believe both of them are important because I don't think we can afford to make a bet right now about which like broad modality is going to win out in the end. Mariana? I'll build on that. And Brian sort of mentioned the word institution a lot in, in what he just said, right? And you know, in management, there's something we call institutional logics, right? These are the very macro level meta sort of forces that are quite invisible. And yet they are governing how organizations and people within organizations, because organizations, as we know, are, are made of people and human beings, 
how folks are behaving and acting and what decisions are being made. And I think what's exciting about this field of design for social innovation through these projects and these conversations is we're starting to see a shift of where where design is uh, getting to those institutional logics. It's uh, trying starting to peel that onion. And um, this is not easy work to convey, to quantify, to measure. And, you know, we have a whole conversation in the book about measuring impact, which is one of my obsessions as a researcher in design. But it's not easy, but it's so profound and, and important. And, and back to your earlier questions and to, you know, bring it back to land it a little bit. I would say that in that phrase of geographies of power, in the mediums of change and this idea of futures, there is this important concept of relationships and designing relationships and thinking about relationships that are shifting. We know they need to shift because a lot of what we have is no longer working, right? We know that a lot of organizations and modes of, you know, our human resource departments and companies and public sector have been designed in in the 19th century, right? We are still living with a lot of legacies that have not adapted to the digital sort of technology disruptions that we have seen in the last uh, 15 years. And so there is a lot of that subtext, I would say, in this book that um, some projects address head on and that we, you know, we could have written a whole uh, other book just on these institutional logics, in my view, that are connected to social innovation. And Andrew, I want I want to hear your thoughts on this, but I want to add a caveat to your answer because I think both answers and and Mariana bringing up this idea of institutional logics really plays into one of the conversations that that you managed, which was the positioning for growth conversation, right? Because this notion of growth, and I've discussed growth quite a bit on the show, is what I would at least consider an an institutional logic, right? In the world in which we live in, growth is something that is not just assumed, but is actually necessary in order for the capitalist project to continue. It requires infinite growth or pretty much all the assumptions, you know, fall apart. Right. It's just one big Ponzi scheme. And once the growth stops, the Ponzi scheme falls apart. Right. Authors editorial. Um, So thinking about that and thinking about your conversation, it would seem that the notion of growth is prime for picking away at from that institutional logic perspective. You know, so how, how did you factor that into your your conversation, Andrew? It's a great, great question. I think the, um, you know, to build off of what Marianne and Brian were saying too, this, this idea of what institutions can do is obviously a, a big factor in so many of the projects that were, you know, their institutions, plural. So many of the projects that were, you know, evident in the in the book, uh, I'm, I'm thinking specifically about, um, you know, in regards to the positioning for growth conversation, the conversations around um, politics, around the importance of First principles, I think that was something that a couple of the, the participants mentioned. Um, what kind of world do we want to live in? You know, how do we, as institutions, reinforce some of the points that we agree that help the world get to where we want it to be? This understanding of institutions is kind of like having inertia and not being able to change, I think, is something, um, you know, I took away from that conversation as being, uh, being somewhat hopeful uh, about this idea of, how, how do we not necessarily completely dismantle the institutions that we're talking about, but find ways to come and have a more of a common understanding of uh, what we're doing that can make the world you know, more like what we're hoping it will be. So this idea of first principles, I think, is re- was really valuable. I also think that the conversations that we're seeing in a lot of the projects, but also that appeared in my um, roundtable around our specific relationships to to parts of the world. I think Indy Johar, who was mentioning, you know, kind of reform, reformulating the relationships we have to nature and to each other and to things, for example, and making sure that we're understanding what the root cause of the problems might be. I know you've had him on the show before, so you probably spoke about this to some, to some degree. 
But I, the one, one of the things I thought was interesting about that conversation and what emerged from it as a learning tool for me in thinking about this, but also kind of like observing some of the other projects is, you know, reflected, I think, in something that Gabriella mentioned, which is, you know, the, how lobbyists, for example, or legislators or, you know, HR mechanisms, how they're able to get things done so easily because, of course, they know the ins and outs, you know, of, of those processes and for designers, we don't think about that so much. We don't think about sort of the nuts and bolts of implementation long down the road. And so to hear their reflection about the importance of understanding those what might seem to be menial aspects of implementation was really refreshing because I think a lot of you know my job as a designer is not necessarily you know the sexy dimensions of getting things done and implementing um a sort of branding system or, um, you know, a new service or something. It's it's understanding the those difficult touch points of seeing that catch on and be usable and be implementable long into the future. So, you know, this this idea of growth, I think, is was a really eye-opening conversation for me to, to sort of be part of. But to hear more of the, their emphasis around the mechanisms of and the mechanics of, of these kind of boring uh, dimensions of what we do and how we have to do it was really valuable, I think. A- absolutely. You know, I'm I'm keeping an eye on the time because I promised you guys as busy people that I would try to keep this to about an hour. So before we get to the final segment of the show, I, I want to ask a, a question that this was not a prepared question. So I'm thinking it through as I, as I ask it. So this is a work in progress. Um, there is so much of a speculative nature inherent in many of the case studies of of the book. And through our conversation, they're very powerful words that are that are used, or I find them to be powerful words. There's this notion of of hope. There's transparency was used quite often. And transparency to me is really just a function of trust. You know, these are are big cultural value-based ideas. So having said that, there's also words on the other side, right? There are things like inertia you know, which lend themselves to other types of values, sort of a, not quite cynicism, but this notion of that things are because they are, and they just kind of keep going, right, on the other side of that. So having said all that in in broad strokes, as you guys, the book is in the world, it's getting into people's hands, you're thinking about the lifespan of these projects and the work, what are really the values that are kind of built into all of this that you would think are necessary in order to to move all of this forward in a way that we have a counter narrative to the one that we currently have. And then I'll get to the final segment of the show, which is the drop. So I'm going to start with you, Mariana, and then go around the room, room, quote unquote. <laughs> uh, I think the the value of you know humility is a is a value that I would I would hope comes you know comes out of this book. The importance of humility as a designer in this space. Andrew, you're up. Collaboration, I think, is one thing. Um, specifically, when it comes to individuals who are not just designers, um, but getting those right people in the room, it doesn't seem like a new word or value, but it's one that I think continues to be elusive for some of us as designers. Brian, I'm afraid I have a slightly clunkier answer here, but thus allowed. One of the goals that we set out for with the book was to really focus on sustainability of design for social innovation, right? So can you continue to do this work? Like if you love doing that kind of design work, can you do it all day, every day for as long as you would like to? And, you know, sure enough, when you speak with practitioners, they're very motivated to do that, but they don't always have a pathway to continue it. Sometimes the work can feel quite precarious financially and otherwise. And so when we were talking about how we might understand that through the inquiry of the research that led to this book, we came to a simple equation of if we can make the work legible, then we can understand the impact that it has had. And if we can understand the impact, then we can assess its legitimacy, right? Is this set of practices a legitimate way to think about building a new world or is it not? And that jury is still out. There are a lot of people represented by all of these case studies that feel strongly that it is or could be. But certainly there are even more people who are not designers and maybe even some designers themselves who who don't necessarily buy into it. But 
until the work is legible and until we have a real frank conversation about the impact, that legitimacy and therefore the sustainability of the practice is a non-starter. And so we're trying to kind of inch the ball a little bit further along in terms of bringing these things to the table as topics of discussion amongst practitioners and also points on which practitioners who are doing this type of design work or interested in this type of design work, that they can make their practice more digestible or more understandable by others. Absolutely. I actually love the fact that that point was was brought up again because it's in my notes. And so if it let me know that I'm looking at the at the right stuff, but it is it is critical if we're going to have this work to continue that it does hit those points. So not that you needed me to agree with all of you guys work, but I'm happy to do so because I think it is essential if we're going to to move the dial on on all of this stuff. So the drop is the final segment of the show. So it's an opportunity for all of us to share something. It can be anything at all. I know we've talked about some pretty serious things and the show tends to talk about serious things, but drops don't have to always be serious. They can be, but they don't need to be. Um, so we're going to go around and ask everybody their drop. I'm going to go first, just a little bit of pride of ownership and it's easier because I've always asked people to go and they never volunteer. So I just, I've opted into going first nowadays. And I only have one drop this week for this episode. And it's actually an anime series. For those who know me, I'm a big anime fan. I have been really for a lot of my life before this was a popular thing. I used to go to conventions when there was no such thing as anime, really. It was like this little one, two guys. Now it's become this big global thing. Everybody loves it. But anyway, (laughs) there's an anime series that's modeled off of the Count of Monte Cristo. And it's an anime version of that. And it's not as widely available as it used to be, dating myself, I had the DVDs, but it's beautifully drawn. It's this really great adaptation of a, of a classic story of revenge that I still think holds up to today. It's from a series from like the 2000s and it's called Gankansu and it's from the Count of Monte Cristo and that's my drop. So we're going to go to Andrew first for his. Uh, I was, thank you. I was hoping you would say Cowboy Bebop um, because that's <laughs> something I've been watching recently too. It's, it wasn't it wasn't what I was going to mention for Drop, but I have a special, uh, it's a special place for that kind of like, that topic in my uh, rotation. But, the, you know, the one thing that I was going to mention is, you know, t- earlier today I was taking a walk around campus here at Parsons and I came across a new book to me, new, I think some of my colleagues put it out in the communication design program. And that's actually my background discipline. And what I didn't realize is that there's been a hundred years of typography at Parsons. And so it's, the program has been lo- out long enough that they actually have some really interesting history around this topic. And so um, uh, it's called 110 and 100 years from form typography interaction at Parsons. And I'm not just trying to shamelessly uh, mention Parsons here, but the uh, the design of the book is really beautiful and it has like nice textures to it, really beautiful printing. And, and uh, you know, as someone who's been looking at this a lot, given that we were working on our book, that's something I wanted to mention. No, that's that's a good one. And it's it's all good to shamelessly mention the, the things we are a part of. I do, I do that constantly. <laughs> so it is it is all good. Um, Mariana, yours? Yeah, um, I would have a film that's been quite acclaimed, a new film, The Power of the Dog by J- uh, Dame Jane uh, Campion. I um, was watching uh, some outtakes of her talking about the making of that film, um, uh, you know, based on a book from Thomas Savage. And I just find that that film brings together this toxic image, you know, of masculinity with so, so many dimensions that are so complex and beautiful, and it has both this stunning visual quality and depth of character. Jane Campion talks about being a thoroughist, is the word she uses. And I was very moved by, by that film, so much so in, in its silence and in its visual, visual splendor as much as by its acting. So that's my drop. This might be Netflix's year. We'll have to see. <laughs> this this might be the one they've been waiting for. <laughs> Brian, you're up. I have two. So the first one is a book called Laser Writer 2 by Tamara Shepshin. And I've really enjoyed reading it. It's a little bit of a nostalgia indulgence, I suppose, but it's set in TechServe from New York, which I remember going to 
many years ago. So it's just been a, a real indulgence. And then the second is the desert. I just got back from Utah where I was spending time out there in the middle of nowhere with very little cell signal and just reminded myself how amazing that landscape is. Anything that gets people out into the world is a, a great drop. And anything that mentions TechServe, which used to be on 14th Street here in the city, again, for those of us who are go back in time to a, a different New York, will fondly remember TechServe's existence and also will remember when it disappeared, right? You know, the changing face of, of New York City. These are all incredible drops. So thank you for, for sharing them. And it's a perfect opportunity for me to thank all of you for being on the show. Andrew, Brian, Mariana, this was an amazing conversation. I really can't say enough good things about the book because I think it's a, a resource that people are going to be using for a really long time. It's it's beautifully designed and prepared. It just it's one of those books that when you get it, it makes you feel really good that you have it. <laughs> so I'm really glad to have a copy of it. Again, it's called Design for Social Innovation: Case Studies from Around the World. I was joined by three of its four editors. Of course, a shout out to Jennifer who couldn't be here but she's with us in spirit and you guys have all done a collective great work. So thank you so much for being on the deep dive. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.